0: When you picked up your study guide this morning, we are beginning a study in the book of Revelation. Some of you have been waiting for that for a long time, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing this with you. I've been praying for a long time about it. I, you know, I, um, I didn't want to jump into Revelation before the time, and I just feel like now's the time that we need to consider the, the prophecy and the words of this book. And um, there's a special blessing for studying the book of Revelation. I don't know if you're aware of that, but, uh, and, and you read it recently if you uh, followed the New Testament reading plan. Uh, it was one of the last books that you read, but there, there's a blessing for those who uh, pay attention and, and follow this book. And uh, the Lord Jesus has given us uh, the information that we need to live successfully as we move toward the end of the age. And so uh, I'm feeling that this is the time that we need to fortify ourselves for the things that are coming as we anticipate uh, the direction that this um, this world is beginning to take. One of the things that I want to avoid as we study Revelation is uh, I, I grew up in the 70s uh, in terms of my theological development. Um, and as I began my college studies and there was a lot of literature being published uh, about um, the end times. Uh, I don't know if you may, some of you may remember uh, some of that, but um, uh, there were a lot of uh, books out on what the symbols of Revelation meant and the creatures that looked like, you know, locusts were the F-16s in those days and uh, they had all kinds of ways of uh, bringing these symbols together to uh, show us the modern armies and techniques and warfare uh, of the day. And then uh, we had had the six-day war in Israel, and that was uh, the the shaking of the end of time, you know, and uh, all these things were uh, under weight of development to rebuild the temple and Uh, everybody was excited and people would pull out charts and they would uh, teach revelation studies and they would have all of these uh, charts and they would try to analyze everything and point it to current events and the newspaper. And uh, people were all excited about that. The only problem that I began to realize was, uh, first of all, as time went along, we realized that not all of those brilliant ideas were true because things began to change that didn't coincide. And uh, the other thing that I realized was people who often got enamored with prophecy failed to develop spiritually. Um, They got all excited about prophetic analysis and and, uh, uh, trying to put the pieces of the Bible together Uh, in this intellectual and anticipatory way, but they did not seem to grow in their depth of faith and their Christ-like character. And that disturbed me, because it almost seemed like a prophecy club instead of a group of followers of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, I have determined in our study that we are going to pay attention to the practical spiritual admonitions of this book as it applies to us in our daily walk with Christ. There's a message here that is greater than the prophecy. There's a message here about how to live and how to live in the face of opposition and persecution and difficulties that challenges us Uh, to be uh, moving on with Jesus. And people have have asked me in the past, you know, why don't you uh, preach more on prophecy so that we'll be ready? And my answer has always been, if you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and determine to follow Him today, you will be ready. You don't have to worry about Getting ready, you will be ready because you will be right where God wants you to be when those times come. And, uh, the other thing that often happens when you get into this, and I remember going to some youth rallies where they showed these, uh, Christian horror flicks. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, you know, they would have the, the, the guillotines and the drama and, uh, people were, being sacrificed for their faith in Christ and then they'd give an invitation and all the young people would rush forward to get saved. They really weren't rushing forward to get saved. They were rushing forward to join the rapture so they could get out of the trouble and not have to face the guillotine and uh that that um that really bothered me. It, it was kind of an emotional uh, uh pressure situation. Uh, and I felt like uh, they, they were not making a decision to follow Christ so much as they were trying to avoid uh, pain and suffering in their life and, and being terrified by these these videos, these movies. And uh, that's why we don't show those in this church and never will because they're they're horrible, they're manipulative uh, and and they approach. Uh, things from the wrong direction. People say, how will I face these terrible times of suffering? I don't think I could do that. Well, today you probably couldn't. But you don't have to worry about it today. Jesus said to his disciples, when they bring you before the magistrates and ask you to give a confession of your faith, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you are to say. If we walk in faith day by day following Jesus Christ and keeping our eyes on Him, friend, no matter what comes, you will be in the presence and power of God and have the availability of the Holy Spirit to enable you to live for Jesus Christ in that moment. And we don't have to worry about those things. We can safely... uh, place our lives in His care, and as the Apostle Paul said, I know and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him against that day. And so, uh, as we study Revelation together, uh, we're going to be looking at the the practical uh, spiritual emphases and lessons that God has for us through His servant John, as well as the uh, the Return and the Coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'd like you to read uh, with me, follow along with me as we read these first verses, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. Um, I have uh, printed that for you in your study guide in the New International Reader's Version. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard Bible, but um, they are both good translations of this passage. "...the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear." The words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Excuse me a minute. You know, as we start out, I want to point out something. It's not it's not so much part of the message of revelation. It's just an interesting sideline, is that we are given some insight into what theologians call the economy of the Holy Trinity. Now economy is not referring to finance here. It's referring to functionality, the uh, roles which the persons of the Godhead have accepted, In the interest of our redemption. And uh, as we look at those roles, um, we see in the scripture that we are alienated from God. He made us in His own image. And um, we learn from Genesis that the image of God in His own image is a plural us. Uh, Let us make man in our image. And so we find out that in the very beginning of Scripture we are introduced to a triune God, a trinity. Um, and we learn as we study the Scriptures that uh, the persons of the Godhead uh, include the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as we study the Scriptures, we find that uh, each of them... "...play a different role in the course and process of our salvation." So that being alienated from God, we need a Savior. We need someone to come uh, and take on human flesh and die for us and pay the price for our sin so that we can be reconciled to God. And the imagery is of being brought back by the Son to God the Father. And Jesus promises His disciples that after His death and resurrection, He will bring to them the same Spirit that has been in Him to be in us, and that we will be indwelt and empowered by the same Holy Spirit. And so we find as the revelation begins to unfold uh, to John, that the Father speaks this message to the Son, who in turn, through his angel, communicates it to John. But as we read a little further in the chapter, we find that the mediation is still through the Holy Spirit. So you have this this kind of thing happening. The Father is initiating, the Son is interceding, and the Holy Spirit is mediating. And we learn from that, and in other places of Scripture, that our prayer life kind of follows the same order. Uh, The Father uh, inspires the Word. The Son speaks the Word. The Holy Spirit guides the writers to record Scripture for us. When we come to prayer, how do we pray? We pray by the Holy Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Uh, Jesus said in John's Gospel, up until this point, you haven't asked the Father anything Ask in my name that it will be done for you. But as we move along, we learn that we ask in the name of Jesus by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who guides our praying. And so we have a relationship with God, with the triune God that includes the entire Godhead. And you and I this morning who know Jesus Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God lives in us, in our bodies. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings and utterings too deep for words. And as He prays through us, through the atoning accomplishment of the Son who has opened Heaven's gates for us right to the throne we are able to approach the Father. And likewise, uh, when the Father would speak to us, He speaks through the Son by the Holy Spirit so that we, our, our worship and our lives are always involved with the whole Trinity. Now, some of you may not be aware of that, or, or at least practically you may not be aware of that. You may think of yourself as being indwelt by Jesus and relating always to Jesus. That's not wrong, um, but it's, it's not full enough, if you please. Um, some of you may place a focus on the Holy Spirit and on His indwelling and empowering of your life. That's not wrong, because it's true, but there's a fuller expression. And uh, John tells us in his first letter, he says, I'm writing to you, children, because um, you have come to know the Father. You have been introduced to the Father through, through the Son. I'm writing to you, young men, because you're strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you have learned to live in victory over the evil one. And then he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know him who was from beginning. And in revealing that, John, the way John uses that phrase, he is telling us that the mature ones in the faith have come to an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is my goal, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering that I can be conformed to the image of His death. This is my desire. I want to know Jesus. And so, I want us to be aware this morning that in our spiritual walk, we have a relationship with the entire Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, always working in harmony, always working in unity in our lives to indwell us, to empower us, to fill us, to give us access to the very throne of God, to mediate for us through Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us. And when we pray, Jesus said, pray this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, glory and hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it's not wrong to pray to the holy spirit it's not wrong to pray to jesus it's not wrong to pray to the father but the model that we're given is to go directly to the throne of god by the mediating power of the holy spirit, of, of the lord jesus in the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and to be aware that we have this relationship with the entire Godhead. And as I said, that's just kind of a, an aside from these first three verses as we see this kind of uh, linearity moving between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to us and back and forth. Now I want to talk about uh some of the historical ways that revelation has been interpreted. And as we do that, uh we're going to uh I'm going to comment as we go along on uh so, some of the different um, weaknesses and and strengths of those particular ways. Most recently, and this is a bit disturbing. The the first view that I want us to consider is called the Preterist view. It's the view that the whole book of Revelation was over and done with in the first century. That everything was fulfilled, everything was accomplished, and basically we look back on it as a book that has some lessons for us, but all of the prophecies and all of the uh, the events that it describes were accomplished in the first century. Oftentimes, people point to the destruction of Jerusalem uh, under the the reign of Titus in, in uh, AD um, 72. That that was the time when uh, all of this stuff was fulfilled, more or less. the The problem with that is that. John is writing the Revelation after those events, and he never mentions it. And you would think that if Revelation applied to that period of time, that he would have at least casually brought it up, but it never occurs in the book. Uh, Others think that it just refers to the Roman uh, opposition of the church and persecution in general. But in the time that Revelation was written, which was probably in the late 80s or early 90s of the first century, the reality is that persecution, like the horrible times of Nero, had largely ended, and that the church was not being uh, globally persecuted throughout the empire. There were pockets uh, of opposition, but basically... It was a live and let live situation toward the end of the 1st century until the the martyrdom of the 2nd century began to to pop up again. And so even in the time that Revelation was written, Rome was there and Rome was evil, but Rome was not presenting the biggest problem to the church. In fact, the church had more problems from the Jews uh, than they did from the Romans. In, in those periods of time, because that that separation was continuing to be refined as the Jewish community was realizing, uh, and the Christian community, that they, they were two separate entities at this point in time. And so the idea that Revelation has already been accomplished, uh, this preterist view, for some reason, has gained attention again. And there are uh, scholars in the evangelical community who are writing uh, commentaries on Revelation that relegate this to a period of past history and have no expectation of any kind of unfolding prophetic future coming from this book. That's that perspective. The second perspective that I want to acquaint you with is called the historicist or the historical view. And that's the idea that Revelation is actually a foreshadowing of the history of the church. So that as you read the message to the seven churches, it is really a message to the church age, uh, the ages of the church. In other words, Ephesus is the first century church and Laodicea is the church at the end of the age, what it's like, and all of the intervening churches describe periods in church history. And so they, they develop a timeline and they apply uh, each one of those churches to a specific period of church history and they look at it as uh, leading historically through the Church Age and culminating uh, after Laodicea uh, in the rapture and in the return of Jesus Christ ultimately to establish the millennium. A third view is that the book of Revelation really doesn't have anything to do with prophecy or history at all. <laughs> it's called the idealist view, and the idea is, that Revelation presents to us timeless truths of spiritual warfare. That it merely reveals to us how to deal with spiritual conflict in battle. And no matter what age we live in or, or, or what we're facing, if we're a facing conflict, Revelation has a message for us here and now in the present tense. But it really doesn't have anything to do with Anything historical, and it really doesn't have anything to do with anything in the future. It's more concerned with just the application of spiritual warfare and the idea that Jesus Christ wins uh, in the end. The futurist viewpoint is the idea that Revelation is pointing us toward a time when these prophecies will begin to be literally fulfilled. We're going to come into a period of time in which all the symbolism of Revelation suddenly begins to make sense. It becomes clear to us what's going on. And we move into a period of time that will mark the very last years of human history. And that this uh, book refers to, principally, that period of time. Now... When you have four different views like this, of course, someone has to come along and say, well, there's a little bit of truth in all of them, so why don't we uh, form an eclectic perspective, <laughs> and we're going to put two or more of these together, and we're going to say that uh, Revelation incorporates uh, all, all of them or some of them uh, in, in concert. Let me share with you some thoughts along those lines. Uh, that may help us to to clarify and pinpoint some of this. First of all, the Revelation was addressed to seven churches of Asia, what we technically today call Asia Minor. John was on Patmos, which was an island to the west of of the uh, East Asian coastline, and... Although he couldn't literally see them, he could look across the waters toward the mainland and envision the churches of Asia Minor there to, to whom he was writing, uh, to whom Jesus was writing and sending the revelation. The reality is, is that this message was written to those churches in the first century. And it had a lesson for them. There was a message for them that was practical and applicable to their circumstances right in that time. And so in that sense of the word, there is a certain historicity to the opening chapters of Revelation that tell us, the particular needs of the seven churches of Asia. So we have to say that there is some element of revelation that has a here and now, speaking of John's time, a here and now application. We can't get away from that. And any time that you have the Scriptures revealing to us a problem coupled with a biblical solution you have an application that we can lift out for ourselves if we're facing the similar kinds of problems. For example, I'm going to be preaching in a few weeks on the church of Ephesus, but for example, if your spiritual life today is cold and you find God very distant and you're having trouble uh, in a vibrant relationship with the Lord. Your doctrine is fine. You're orthodox. You're holding to the truths of Scripture. But the life has gone out of your experience. You're missing something in your walk with Christ. And, And Christianity for you has become... A rote pattern of habit based on orthodoxy, but lacking vitality. Is there a message in Revelation for you? Certainly there is. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, You've examined those who claim to be apostles and were false, and you found them to be false, and you've, you've purified your doctrine. And and you're walking a straight path theologically, but you're cold. You, you, you've you've lost your first love. You've fallen out of love with Jesus. So you need to go back and do what you did at first, and you need to recover your first love. You know that's basically good advice. In any relationship that's gone stale. Got a marriage that's gone stale? Start dating again. Go back and do the things you did at first. Go back and recover what you lost. And Jesus is saying to the church church at Ephesus, Go back to the beginning. Worship me. Give heed to my word, not academically, but personally and passionately. Go through the the motions. You say, oh, it just feels like motions. This isn't getting me anywhere. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Go back and do what you did at first. And one day, you'll find the spark being fanned into flame. And pretty soon the fire will begin to build. And you'll wake up one morning with a fresh love for Jesus and a new passion for Him. You see, the book of Revelation is filled with much practical application. Based on the message that was intended for the moment. So what do we have there? Well, we have the historical view. And we have the idealist view. Kind of put together just in that that simple thing. But um, what about some of these other things? Well, there's no question in my mind that Revelation is focused after chapter 3 on the future. The beginning in chapter 4, we are introduced to the things that will happen in the end of time. And we find a strong correlation between the unfolding events of Revelation 4 to 16 with much of the writing of the Old Testament and its prophetic perspective. We find uh, things happening in Israel that we didn't uh, anticipate. We find things happening in the church, we find things happening in the world that hints have been given all through Scripture of the things that are to come. And so there's no question to me that Revelation is a prophetic prediction and and revelation of the future times. And yet, in all of that, there is a constant message for the church. Why is there a blessing for reading it? Because... As you study and anticipate the blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ, there is all kind of practical spiritual application to enable us to walk more faithfully with him. So John says in verses 1 to 3 as he writes This general uh, introduction. Write down and send to the seven churches the things which must happen soon. And we all have the question. How soon is soon? It's been 2,000 years. I mean, come on. This is five times as long As the pilgrims landing in America. I mean, really, how long is soon? When is this really going to happen? And one of the things that we have to recognize is, and this is not a cop-out, it just happens to be the truth, that a thousand years with the Lord is as a single day. And a single day is as a thousand years. Now you can take that literally or not, but the reality is that God is a patient God. And he tells us in Second Peter why he's patient. He says, Know first of all this, Second Peter chapter three beginning in verse three. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Speaking of the flood. But his word, but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise the way some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is delaying The consummation of the age and the return of Jesus Christ for one reason only. He wants to include in the great company of the redeemed everyone who will respond to the message of grace. God does not want anyone to be left out. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God is waiting for everyone that will respond to that message to come to faith. That's why in the early days of our Christian Missionary Alliance movement, the watchword was win the world for Christ and bring back the King. Because we believe fervently that if we spread the good news of Jesus Christ across the world to unreached people groups, that when the last person in the last tribe had been reached, it would open the door for Jesus Christ to return. And the sooner that mission is accomplished, the sooner our Lord Jesus comes back. I've always, since I was a teenager, first following Christ with all of my heart, I've always had in my mind an image that somewhere, someday on this planet, someone is going to invite someone else to open their heart to Jesus Christ and to pray in the repentance and forgiveness of their sins to receive Him as their Lord and Savior. And that person is going to be the last one. And when that person says yes to Jesus, a trumpet's going to sound and our Lord is going to return. I've always had that image in my mind. It has been the impetus behind mission endeavor throughout our lives. It has guided and governed our passion that when the last person comes to Jesus, Jesus returns in victory. So, how soon? Well, as soon as the job is done, As soon as the task is complete, our Lord Jesus is coming back. There's also in these verses that promised blessing for those who read and heed the words of prophecy. And you know, as far as I know, and I'm fairly confident of the accuracy of my statement, that this is the only book in the Bible that brackets itself with blessing on both ends. Revelation 3, or chapter 1, verse 3, says that the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are in it are blessed for the time is near. And at the end of the book, chapter 22, behold, I am coming quickly, blessed is the one, is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Friends, we're embarking on a blessing. We're going to spend, oh, I don't know, a while <laughs> on a blessing. And as we study, there will probably be some scary moments as we look at some of these uh, disastrous things that, that may come upon the earth. And then we'll look at the glorious things that are going to come upon the earth. But in the midst of it all, Jesus says, you are blessed if you study and read and heed the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, I've given you kind of a thumbnail of how we're going to approach it and the sections in which it's going to break down. I'm going to uh, bring you ten messages between now and the middle of July that are going to take us uh, through Is that right? May, June, no, yeah, something like that, early July, that are going to take us through uh, the seven churches. And then uh, I'm going to take a break, invite some other folks to speak for a couple of Sundays, uh, and uh, back up and do some global preparation for the next section. But we're going to work our way through the revelation and receive the blessing that God has for us. As we do that. Let's pray together. Father thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for. This revelation. This wonderful book. That opens for us. A great blessing to those who study and read and heed the words. And I pray that you would minister to us through it. Both. In this time in our lives. And in our confident and comforted understanding of where the world is going. It's not going to take you by surprise. It shouldn't take us by surprise. People are running around wringing their hands, wondering how it's all going to turn out. But we know, and we rest confidently in our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name I pray. Amen.